You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 16th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippi. Coming up on today's programme, a second mass air attack in days has been launched by Russia across Ukraine. We'll have the latest and hear from the former Ukrainian Deputy Prime Minister. Thousands of documents related to the 1963 assassination of US President John F. Kennedy have been released. Our US editor Chris Lord is here to explain more. Chris. We'll look through those 13,000 files, Marcus, and also ask what legacy that 1963 assassination has left in Dallas. Also ahead, the Netherlands is set to formally apologise for 250 years of slavery. We'll ask if this is just the first step. And Virgin Atlantic plans to operate the world's first net-zero transatlantic flight in 2023. We'll find out how it works. All that's right here on The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippi. Russia has launched a major missile attack on Ukrainian cities, including Kyiv and Kharkiv. Residents of the capital have been told to take shelter as air raids sounded. Meanwhile, Kharkiv's governor says the city was under a blackout after missiles knocked out power supplies. I'm joined by Ivana Klimpush Jinzaze, former Ukrainian deputy prime minister and the chair of Ukraine's parliamentary committee on integration of Ukraine to the EU. Welcome to the programme. Ivana, could you start by telling us more about these latest strikes? How much is known? Thank you, Marcus, for inviting me and giving us the the floor. Um, Well, unfortunately, the situation is pretty difficult. We are grateful to our um, air defense and all the support that has been given to it up till till now, but definitely, unfortunately, not all the targets that have been, uh, not all the missiles that have been targeting our infrastructure and our cities have been hit down, so we have a serious power outage additional on the top of, of the regular one that we already have in Kiev, and also we have some of the uh, central districts left without water supply, without heat um, the temperatures are in um, minus Celsius already, so the situation will be difficult for for many many families. And as you have mentioned, Kharkiv is without uh, without electricity, without heat and water supply, and also almost all the Kharkiv region in some uh, in Krivirich. Unfortunately, the missile hit the uh, residential building and two people died, eight are wounded. So the terror that Russia has been imposing on the Ukrainian uh, civilian population across the country just continues. And I think that that means that it's it's time to step up all the, all the efforts across the globe to A, help Ukraine to protect itself, and uh, B, to ensure that, that Russia um, is given the, all the signals and all the pressure that it stops this, this brutality. Can you try to explain what the atmosphere is like where you are joining us from, from the capital, Kiev? I guess people knew to expect that this kind of attacks would continue. Uh, you know, people are um, just very, very focused, and people 
are um, definitely getting angry, more and, more and more angry on the aggressor, on the occupiers. Uh, but they are also very much um, mobilized in terms of uh, focusing on what they have to do to ensure that they are creatively trying to protect their families. So they are uh, taking care of some water supplies. You know, they are, they are trying to, to ensure that they have some... Um, self-created, self-made uh, heating systems um, in order to keep them warm and, and are trying to, to still hang on to their, to their lives and try to, to live them through because they know that they want to live them here in Ukraine without uh, Russians, without that uh, aggressor that is trying to conquer us. Ivana, just a moment ago, you were asking for more action by by the West, by the world, to help Ukraine and and to to try to prevent Russia from continuing its attacks. I'm wondering, what are your thoughts about recent headlines we have been seeing? First of all, the Pentagon has announced it will expand military combat training for Ukrainian forces using these slower winter months to instruct larger units in more complex battle skills. The US is also expected to send Ukraine Patriot missile systems. What are your thoughts about these headlines? How big of a game changer can these developments be? Definitely, they could be a game changer, especially Patriots, but we need them as soon as possible. We need them yesterday. So the speed, the quantity and quality of the uh, defensive and offensive weaponry that is being um, delivered to Ukraine matter a lot. And uh, for us, it's a matter of preserving the lives and the possibility to go on with their lives for Ukrainian citizens, but also the possibility to kick uh, kick Russians out. But we also need tanks, modern tanks, and uh, uh, we need also fighter jets. We need additional multiple launch rocket systems. We need additional artillery systems. Uh, and we need the longer-range missiles and, and equipment to get to those military bases uh, Russian military bases, including in Crimea, including in the occupied Crimea, including in the uh, occupied Black Sea, so that they we would uh, cut off their um, chains of supply and we could protect our civilians. And I'm glad to hear that Ben Wallace um, is mentioning the consideration by the British government to give us the longer-range missiles. So I hope the decision is taken as soon as possible and then it's also implemented uh, even faster. In recent months, obviously, we have spoken to many Ukrainians who all have been asking for more equipment and better equipment. Do you think the West is listening and do you think Ukraine is gradually getting what, it's really, what it really needs? Ukraine is gradually getting uh, what it really needs. But the problem is that all the, the decisions take time and sometimes they are postponed and every single hour of delay means additional lives of Ukrainians. So we could have preserved many uh, buildings, many cities, many villages, many lives if some of the decisions were made earlier. So that's why we are very much encouraging to take all the decisions that are needed for a real victory of Ukraine and, um, and, and and preservation of the nation and the country and preservation of the global geopolitical order and rule-based order um, in the world because this war has the consequences for the whole, for the whole globe.
Now, in, in recent days and recent weeks, we have seen intensified missile and drone attacks by Russia. What do you think Moscow's master plan is looking ahead to these winter months? Well, Moscow just wants to, to sow some panic and, and humanitarian disaster and chaos in, uh, into Ukrainian society. It wants to, to reach the point where... Um, Moscow believes that it can turn the Ukrainian society against Ukrainian authorities so that society would demand capitulation and negotiations. But they are getting totally, totally opposite results. Uh, they um, have they are reaching um, the point when Ukrainian society is donating more after each attack to our armed forces, to different volunteer organizations, humanitarian organizations that are helping in the front and those who are in need um, after after these attacks. Uh, Ukrainian society really, really just wants a victory. Um, according to the recent polls, more than 80% of Ukrainians are... are uh, Categorically against negotiations with with Russia because uh, whatever their calls are uh, from the Russian Federation, those are just a smokescreen. They just want to uh, get some um, some some um, time to regroup and re-attack us, and uh, we should not be misled by their narrative. Ivana Klimpush, Jinzaza, joining us from Kiev. Thank you very much and stay safe. It's almost 12.10 here in London. Now here is Monaco's Carlta Rebello with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marcus. The United States Pentagon will expand military combat training for hundreds of Ukrainian forces starting next year. From January, 500 Ukrainian troops a month will travel to Germany to train with the US Army in advanced battlefield tactics. The European Parliament is considering banning Qatari officials from its premises in response to the Cash for Influence investigation. President Roberta Metsola has promised a wide-ranging reforms package aimed at tackling what's become the biggest scandal in the institution's history. At least 15 people have died in Peru following a week of violent protests, demanding the reinstatement of ousted former president Pedro Castillo. He was removed from office and arrested on charges of rebellion and conspiracy for his attempt to shutter Congress and rule by decree. And the United States government has made a formal request to Australia to extradite a former U.S. Marine accused of illegally training Chinese military pilots. Daniel Duggan, who is now an Australian citizen, is alleged to have provided military training to a South African flight school in 2010 and 2012. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Carlotta. In the U.S., the National Archives has just released thousands of records related to the assassination of former President John F. Kennedy President Joe Biden had ordered the release of the files earlier and the White House says more than 97% of records in the collection are now publicly available. Joining me now in the studio is our US editor Chris Lord. Chris, welcome to the program. What do these files reveal? What is new? So... Here this morning, there's 13,173 files that have been made publicly available online related to the 1963 assassination of John F. Kennedy. And as you say, there has already been large tranches of documents released in the past. So we've got another batch. Still 3% of that file remains redacted and unavailable. But what I think there's a few key bits that we get here. First of all, Anyone who's looking for a conspiracy theory is not going to be satisfied with this. There's no smoking gun here of any suggestion that Lee Harvey Oswald didn't act alone, which is obviously with the official findings of the commission that was uh, tasked with investigating this. They came to the conclusion that he was a lone gunman 
operating out unhinged and with a vendetta against the former president, John F. Kennedy. Any idea that he in some way was collaborating with the KGB or with the Soviets at the time, which is one of the conspiracy theories that's been around and sustained, actually, there's nothing in here to suggest that. And in fact, if you sort of dig into these a little bit, what you do find is actually evidence to the contrary, that in fact, the KGB at the time regarded him as a pretty unstable individual, a little bit crazy, uh, and not, in fact, the... uh, you know, potential hired gun that, that some conspiracy theorists would like to say. However, you do reveal certain quite interesting things about what the CIA was up to at the time. Uh, there seems to be some sort of suggestion that the president of Mexico actually helped the US to uh, wiretap the Soviet embassy in Mexico at the time, uh, looking for potential threats to, to, to the president and so on. Um, all quite interesting stuff. But as I say, despite this sheer volume of information that's been released, I think this is probably one for the historians and less for the conspiracy theorists. Why do you think we had to wait for almost 60 years for these files to come out? And why did President Biden decide that this was the right time to release them? It's so interesting. You know, if you if you find that the reason that this is, well, to, the only reason this has come out really, which I, I, you know, I think is so fascinating in terms of American history is that it was it was already lock and keyed shot until Oliver Stone's film about JFK, the biographical film about him, was released. And there was a little bit at the end of the film that says, you know, the US government refuses to open this file of all these documents. We simply do not know what happened. And the public pressure that came from Oliver Stone's film was what ultimately led to a law being passed in 1992, of which at the time Joe Biden was on the Senate. So he was one of the people who passed that law through that said uh, by a certain period, by 2017, all documents have to be released. Now, find ourselves in 2022 still they're still not all released there's still three percent remaining uh, under lock and key i still think you know that story of uh, i think the feeling you know in america you look back to then to the early 90s you know there are certain parallels with our time if you remember back to the early 90s it was a period where conspiracy theories came back into vogue as they do over the course of history you know conspiracy theories come and go and that was another period where you know, the X-Files was on the television. People were obsessed with this idea that there was alternative narratives that they weren't being having, given access to. And so I think at the time they felt the pressure, but I still think it's fascinating. 3% remains under lock and key. Exactly. Chris, obviously, a couple of months ago, you went to Dallas for mm. the Chiefs conference. And, and I'm, I'm wondering what it felt like being there. How is the assassination of JFK felt, JFK felt there now almost 60 years later? It's so interesting, Marcus. I found it incredibly fascinating, the relationship with that event, because in some respects, there is an element here where tourism is probably the wrong word, but because of its in historical significance, you know, the grassy knoll and the book depository are on maps in Dallas and you can go and look at them and there is a sort of equivalent museum and and memorial to what happened as well but there is a sort of element of it that is a for visitors where you can go and see what happened but the legacy in Dallas where you know Monocle held its first ever US conference you know I went before the conference to do a load of reporting there to kind of look at what was happening in the city today and you talk to people and it's still this deep wound because for a long time, Dallas was called the City of Hate after the uh, assassination of JFK. You know, it, that was the nickname that was applied to the city mm. because it, it was associated with this terrible act of, uh, you know, if you will, terrorism against the democracy of the United States. And, you know, the name of Lee Harvey Oswald was a, was a stain on the city. And I think, you know, it's interesting just going around and talking to people that 
that very fact, I think, still causes a lot of pain there. And, you know, the city itself of Dallas, you know, in Texas, never had any oil, was mm. really a banking city, was a business city. And yet within it was embedded this history of being the pivotal point where, if you will, conspiracy theories were born in America, or, or the big ones of our time. And so many have followed it in its wake of, of JFK. I think that that stain has never quite disappeared from the city's legacy. Now that we're talking about that pain and, and those scars, do you think the release of these documents may help at all? I think they help the historians a little bit to to tease out a bit more of what happened and how many links the CIA had as I t- at the time with Mexico and so on and what was going on there, as I mentioned earlier. But I think that 3% that still remains under lock and key is interesting because the way it's been framed so far is that essentially these are administrative documents that would if you will, reveal the secrets of CIA spycraft mm. and that therefore they're very sensitive and if they were to get out, then they might endanger operations and, and so on now. The trouble is with any conspiracy theory, when you have leave any surplus, any residue of something that's left, that even just that 3% markers, that always gives oxygen to those who say, yes, but what else is there? The theories are going out? to continue. Exactly. Chris Lord, thank you very much for joining us here on The Briefing. You are back with a briefing on Monocle 24. The Netherlands is expected to formally apologize for its role in slave trade next week. The Prime Minister Mark Rutte has said that on Monday he will deliver a public message that will aim to do justice to the meaning and experience of past slavery. It's widely anticipated that this will be an apology for the hundreds of years when the country exploited over 600,000 people from Africa and Asia. Almas Deferra is the human rights watches racism researcher in Europe and she joins us from Berlin. Welcome to the programme. Could you first tell us about your reaction to the reports that the Netherlands is indeed going to apologise? Yes, thank you so much for having me. Um, So obviously an apology by the Dutch government for the slavery and the crimes committed um, during the slavery is something that is welcomed and is definitely overdue. Um, it is part of a reckoning with the past, the slavery past of the Netherlands and the government. Um, however, when approaching such apologies for um, for slavery or colonialism, it is very important that this is done with meaningful and effective consultation with impacted communities, in this case, um, descendants of enslaved people um, in those former colonies. And... Um, such apologies should be accompanied also with reparations um, and other forms um, of um, reparation. I mean, reparations can be financial, um, an apology is part of that, but it is really a true acknowledgement um, that you know crimes were committed and that they want to repair um, these uh, the, the impact it has had on people. Do you think this is all happening in the wrong order if an apology is made on Monday without too much consultation? 
Yes, exactly. I mean, what we could see is when the government, when it was leaked that the government was um, intending to apologize um, for the slavery, um, communities um, in those colonies were, um, and also other activists in the Netherlands were reacting, saying that the date of December 19th was not the right date to have been chosen, but it should instead have been July 1st next year, which will mark 150 years since the abolition of slavery. Um, by the Netherlands. And so, you know, it would have been much more appropriate to choose that date and not to rush an apology now and not to do so in effective consultation with people impacted. How much routine is there in the world now? You call for consultation, you call for reparations, but has it been done right anywhere yet? I'm wondering which countries should the Netherlands be looking at now as an example of of dealing with the history right Yeah, I wish I could give you a great example. As you rightly mentioned, this has not been widely done so in the context of colonial past. Um, I mean, you know, when you look also at Germany, who attempted actually um, of um, uh, of conducting reparations in relation to um, its colony in Namibia, um, the the agreement that came out of consultations just between the German government and um, the Namibian government now failed. It was already rejected by the people, the Ovaherero and the Nama, who have never been part of these consultations. And so that's already a big problem. Then also the framework of it is completely done wrong because it's uh, presented as a political negotiation just between these two governments. And then also what comes out of it is development aid to be paid over 30 years. So this this deal has now been rejected. The government is now basically, um, you know, I mean, forced to kind of reopen it because even its only counterpart, Namibia, now rejected it. And this agreement is also not enforceable. So there's no legal binding obligation on the German government coming out of this. So, you know, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from that by governments like the Netherlands, by the UK and by other former colonies, if they are truly meaning to acknowledge the crimes that they have committed um, and also to 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 provide um, reparations to communities. So it's good to get an apology, but that is not enough. If 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 we imagine that we have the Dutch government listening to this program now, what would be the first steps to actually take? What would be your recommended path of 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 dealing with history? Yes, so there are several, um, you know, um, messages, um, you know, that the government should be taking away from from also already the outcry that came out of the announcement of the apology on Monday is that they should really go back, not rush this, really go back and sit down with communities and really discuss of how to do this properly, you know, whether it's like, you know, the apology as such, but also what kind of other reparations should be necessary to really acknowledge truly that, you know, they want to provide to repair what they have done in the past. And also the Netherlands is now also um, required by the European Union to put together an action plan on anti-racism. And that action plan is coming from a commission initiative um, from after George Floyd, which requires governments in the European Union now to reckon with um, or yeah, a reckoning with Uh, institutional rec- uh, uh, racism within their own countries, which also means dealing with the colonial past. And reparations is part of that. So the government should really sit down, 
put in their strategy that they have to implement um, as a EU legal requirement and to really ingrain proper mechanisms on conducting reparations in the future. And that goes also for other European countries that are, you know, intending to truly reckon with their colonial past. Almas, thank you very much for your insights. That was Almas Deferra joining us from Berlin. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. It is 2025 in Hong Kong, 12.25 here in London and 7.25 a.m. in New York City. You are back with The Briefing. I am Markus Hippi. It's time to catch up with the latest news in the world of aviation. Joining me on the line is Paul Charles, CEO of the PC Agency, which provides expert travel insights to governments and travel brands. Welcome to the programme. Paul, as, as former Virgin Atlantic director, you were organising the first commercial biofuel flight ever on Virgin Atlantic in 2008. Now, next year, we are to see them launch the first transatlantic net zero flight. How much can you tell us about that? It's a hugely exciting time uh, to see Virgin and other airlines pushing ahead in terms of these milestones in sustainable aviation. What Virgin Atlantic are going to be doing is flying a Boeing 787 between Heathrow and JFK Airport in New York. And it's going to be the first transatlantic flight to achieve net zero emissions, it seems. Now, this has been a long time coming. As you say, in 2008, when I worked at Virgin Atlantic, we flew the first biofuel flight. We had about 15% of that flight was biofuel. And things luckily have moved on in the last 14, 15 years or so, perhaps not at the speed we'd have wanted, but they've moved on to this extent where Virgin will be flying using sustainable aviation fuel or SAF. How commercially viable is that? Well, in the short term, it's not commercially viable at all. It's costing a lot of money. Uh, The UK government's putting a a million pounds towards it, which is nothing compared with the total cost. It's going to need to develop SAF fuel and SAF plants in a great number. But it's a start. And and this isn't going to happen overnight. It's going to take a decade at least to see many more aircraft flying using SAF and also to check they're safe, of course. But it is a big milestone. The fact it's happening at all is to be welcomed. Absolutely. Well, let's continue with some other news headlines. The EU Parliament wants to investigate whether Qatar influenced an air transport agreement that was signed between Europe and Qatar, granting Qatar Airways unlimited access to the European market. And obviously, this is in connection to the corruption scandal that has shaken Brussels. Paul, could you tell us more about that deal, first of all, that allowed Qatar Airways access to the EU market? Yes. So what you have between governments overall, not just uh, the EU parliament, but uh, governments across the world, are these deals called open skies deals. They they essentially enable uh, airlines to fly into particular territories and between those two territories. So open skies deals are the hallmark of a successful economy, if you like, because you need airlines to be flying in and out of a particular country. And Qatar already has an open skies deal with the EU. It enables Qatar Airways to fly between many points in the EU and its home base in Doha in Qatar. And essentially what the European Parliament is saying is that because of this ongoing investigation into links between the EU and Qatar, then it could affect uh, future open skies agreements or accords put in place. But of course, Qatar is already flying these routes. So I don't think it's going to affect anything in the short term. What it may do is hold up 
visa freedoms, visa liberalization, and potentially the final rubber stamping of an open skies deal. But the fact remains that Qatar is already flying between the EU and Doha and very successfully too. Exactly. Well, let's finish by looking looking forward to 2023. What is the state of the industry at the moment? Do you think airliners are set for their first good profit since 2019? It's certainly healthier than it was looking at the start of the year. Clearly, COVID restrictions prevented airlines from opening up effectively due to border controls being in place. But things have opened up, even in Hong Kong, and that has helped airlines have a very profitable and successful summer period and also Q3. And all the signs are Q4 will be just as successful. So yes, airlines are getting back to profitability. They're doing it on the back of lower capacity. They're not flying as many seats or planes as they were pre-pandemic in most cases, but they've realized they can be more profitable with fewer uh, seats and fewer aircraft operating and needing fewer staff, of course. And I think that's what we're going to see into 2023, this continuation of high prices due to inflation and high fuel costs, but also the schedules being more streamlined, if you like, than they were pre-pandemic. Um, couple that with consolidation in the industry, and airlines may be profitable, but they may also be snapped up. And I think you're going to see more consolidation between various carriers. Looking at those ticket prices, do you agree with those experts who have been saying that there's no returning to the prices we saw before the pandemic? No, I think we're in for certainly two or three years of high prices. Once those prices go higher, they rarely come down, especially in the case of the frills carriers. And now, you know, if you fly London Nice, for example, if you fly business class, it used to be about four or five hundred pounds typically. Now it's about twelve to fifteen hundred pounds for a business class return between London and Nice. That's just an indication of how prices have shot up, and I don't expect them to fall in the short term. Paul Charles from the PC Agency, thank you very much for joining us today. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Tom Webb and Laura Kramer. Our studio manager was Steph Chungo. The Briefing is back on Monday at the same time. I am Marcus Hippi. Goodbye and thanks for listening.